My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. When dealing with people, remember you are not dealing with creatures of logic, but with creatures of emotion. Dale Carnegie. Carnegie had a pretty unhealthy and bizarre take on masturbation, in my opinion, which we might discuss another day. But he had a good point here. We human folks are emotional creatures, and our emotional intelligence can play a big role in our relationships. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin. Today, we are going to explore this topic, plus vulva love, dream work as a therapeutic tool, and navigating major life change with a fantastic expert I'll introduce shortly. You'll also hear from Dr. Megan Fleming for a listener who's wondering how a recent medical diagnosis will affect her sex life as she considers having sex for the first time. Before we dive in, a quick reminder to sign up for occasional Girl Boner Extras at augustmclaughlin.com. I send personal emails about once a month featuring lessons I've learned, news and events, behind-the-scenes stuff, and some sweet freebies every now and then. You can also find my book, Girl Boner, The Good Girl's Guide to Sexual Empowerment, which has juiciness for all genders, on Amazon. Find additional purchase options on my website. I also want to thank everyone who's attended one of my book launch events here in Los Angeles, in Minneapolis, in Vegas, New York City, or Boise. I've had so much fun meeting listeners in person. I have more events coming up in LA and Portland and would love to see more of you there. Details, you guessed it, are on my website. Now, I'm so pleased to welcome Anne Hodder to the show. Anne is a multi-certified sex and relationships educator, endorsed by San Francisco Sex Information, Planned Parenthood Los Angeles, and the American College of Sexologists International. Her work focuses on inclusive sexuality education, emotional intelligence, shame reduction, healthy relationship management, and therapeutic dream work, all with a fun and friendly approach. Thank you for joining me, Anne. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Could you share a bit about your background and kind of growing up, what did you learn about sex and relationships? Oh, man. So it's funny. I actually wrote a short post about this um, on Instagram recently. I'm starting to use that as like a blog alternative to just like let things out. I learned a lot about sex and anatomy at the library at my local teeny tiny town in New England where I used the card catalog, which I'm aging myself. I remember existed. the card catalog. Mm-hmm. I loved it. So good at navigating that. Good at the alphabet. You have to be good at the alphabet. Um, and I would go and like tiptoe very conspicuously uh, into the sex section and just like pull a book and run to the back. And I also knew they had back issues of Cosmopolitan magazine and I would just eat it all up because uh, I didn't have any other real resources. Um, my parents were, were relatively hands off and, um, I don't have a ton of memory exactly like why. Um, but I just kind of took it into my own hands, which I think there are pros and cons to that, but I was really fortunate to not have had any kind of preconceived notions or expectations. And so my understanding of what normal was didn't even really register as a thing. I just was like, okay, interesting. This is what this is. And that looks like, and, um, I just like ate it up and, uh, 
started masturbating at a really young age and just somehow for some reason did not associate any kind of shame to any of those actions um i'm sure partly because we were not a religious household either uh and as a result of the hands-offness of my parents we didn't really have a lot of value systems being imposed on us my sister and me to follow so it was really like i i got to make it what it was and thank goodness for that yeah yeah i love that you had that freedom and initiative and that you didn't have it all shrouded in shame it sounds like you also knew to keep it quiet though to kind of hide away well i did you know it's interesting yes and no i I think part of the maybe negative side of having there been such a hands-off attitude with um, authority figures in my life, I just kind of like would touch myself wherever, like wherever I was and if it felt good, great. And I remember, you know, finding, I also like made my own sex toys. It was like just so like beautifully, adorably, naively, just innocent. Like this feels good. I'm going to do this. And um, I remember my mom walking in on me in the living room once using like a feather duster just to like dust around my sensitive areas and just (laughs) whatever felt good I just did. And I don't remember her, you know, freaking out or being completely just aghast at like, what an idiot. Like, why would you even do that here? It was just sort of like not the best locale. Um, Maybe do that someplace else. And I wish I had a better memory of it. So I just, it was secret in the sense, like, no one knew what I was necessarily exploring or trying to navigate, but I also didn't just hold myself into my room to do it. Mm. So no one's surprised that you then became a sex educator? I guess not, which was a total, it was, that was also an accidental direction. It was just sort of, um, I went to journalism school and wanted to be the fashion editor of Vogue, like all this, you know, hilarious small town New England (laughs) person wanting to, you know, what their career would be like. And uh, I studied sociology and gender in addition to the degree and just found it really interesting and then found a a sexuality class that they offered at college and was just kind of making my own minor in addition to the major. And uh, when fashion journalism sort of crashed and burned, when I realized what it actually was, you know, all of my fantasies were kind of like set aflame as soon as I moved to Los Angeles uh there was an opening to be a copy editor at a magazine that covered the adult industry similar to how Variety or Hollywood Reporter covers Hollywood and I was like oh yes why why wouldn't I be sex journalism that sounds interesting which isn't what this magazine did it was very Mm -hmm. much covering porn and um what the internet was slowly turning into as a porn hub no pun intended Mm -hmm. um this was even before porn hub existed so uh even from there, it wasn't clear where I was going, but it w- but it did make sense that going into a sexuality direction was where I wanted to go or where I should go. It would be stupid not to. Yeah. Well, it seems like such a perfect fit and you do such wonderful work. I follow you everywhere online oh. and <laughs> love your messages. Could we talk a little bit about emotional intelligence? I know there's IQ. Some people call it emotional intelligence EQ. Mm-hmm. How do you, in layman's term, define that? I really just think it's about um, understanding what emotions are specifically to you and what it means to feel them, what it means to not feel them, and specifically to get to know how you personally experience various emotions in your body. Mm. Um, We do not, there are no classes about emotional intelligence or how to feel growing up. Um, A majority of us were taught to not feel growing up or we taught ourselves not to feel in order to cope and survive. Um, and we also learned, you know, however, our, the authority figures in our lives experience their emotions, we kind of, that was our influence. And so it was easy to adopt that as a method because 
sort of like learning a language, why would you know there are other ways to communicate if there was only one way when, you know, that you, that you experienced growing up? So um, really understanding that emotions are not just something you think about and experience in your head. It's actually a full body experience. And once you start really paying attention to what's coming up for you and you take a pause some call it like a mindfulness practice and you're like, okay, what, what do I feel right now? do I feel anything in my body at all? And you just kind of scan around to see what's up. And sometimes it helps to record it in a journal to keep track. And after a while, you might notice a pattern. And you're like, interesting, this actually might be fear because I notice I feel this tingle there, this clench in my jaw. I get a headache soon after each time I'm about to go on a stage or something. And so you really get to define uh, your own emotional experience. And the more you do that, the more connected you end up getting to yourself. So your emotional intelligence increases. Absolutely. Which is a really beautiful thing. What would be some signs that perhaps you and a partner have different, I don't know, I don't want to say levels, Mm -hmm. but just maybe one person is more connected in that way and another person is not? Because I imagine that's a source of conflict for a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think a a main sign would be reactivity. If somebody is um, very vocal, talking a lot, very focused on being right or wrong or whether something is good or bad, very like binary thinking, that typically means that you're really stuck in your head. Um, That is what we call like a reactive mindset. Um, It's incredibly common. It would be nice if the world only had two choices for everything because then it would be less complicated. (laughs) Wouldn't it Um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But we are just drowning in the gray area, hoping that we'll find the black and white. And it's devastating to us and, it, and it's unsustainable which is you know it causes illness mental illness physical sickness it, it really like our bodies are not built to deal with the binary in that way we are not because emotions people. have to go somewhere right they happen whether we want them to or not which is something and they're not it, controllable which is the absolute opposite of what our culture believes what we're taught in school if we're taught anything at all and what we learn in our households what we can control is how we behave how we react as a result of those emotions And emotional intelligence is being able to register, I'm feeling really fucking angry right now. And I understand that anger is sort of an emotion, an emulsion of fear and sadness. And uh, I know what I like to do when I'm angry and it doesn't actually make anything better at all. It causes harm, makes things worse. Therefore, what can I do instead? And obviously that is not the narrative you have in your mind, but that is the actual practice of building emotional intelligence. And you can't build emotional intelligence when you're in a reactive mindset. It's literally impossible. So you have to do what you can to move from reactive to creative mind. And when you're in creative mind, then you're actually able to really see on a macro level what the fuck is going on and then build a solution and and, uh, react in a more just healthy and constructive way. This must be so important when really difficult things come up, although much harder also. As you were speaking, I was thinking about... I generally have felt like emotional intelligence is something I really value. And I I have worked to embrace feelings and I've done lots of therapy and and all of that as a a sensitive person, like learning to really let those feelings come out. But then uh, some situations happened where I ended up feeling a bit traumatized. Mm -hmm. And so I'd feel triggered by things. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling like this is so confusing to me because I'm I work on this. Like I, I could talk about it and I could try to understand it, but I still would feel triggered. Of course. Could you speak to the difference between feeling triggered and I guess, I don't know if reactive is the right word, but how does, how does um, 
emotional intelligence play into those types of situations where we feel traumatized? That's a great example. I mean, being triggered is a reactive state. When we're triggered, our body is responding reactively in a fight, flight, or freeze form, which is an innate reaction that we as, you know, former animals needed to keep us safe. And being reactive, just I want to make clear, is not like a bad thing because bad is also binary. Bad, good, like fuck all that. That's bullshit. Doesn't exist. Reactionary has literally kept us safe our entire lives. It keeps us from danger. It helps us navigate situations. It doesn't mean that we're always correctly assuming that something is dangerous. But if we didn't have that reactive mindset, we'd all be getting hit by buses constantly, you know, or we (laughs) would have been eaten by every tiger in the past. Um, So uh, when we are triggered, we are absolutely reactive. And the, the best way to manage that is to understand what your triggers are when you are not currently being triggered. You can get out of a triggered mindset. The body really just needs two things. At first, it can no longer, you have to disrupt the visual representation of what the trigger is. So remove yourself from it. Even if it's just averting your gaze from something, putting your phone down from the text, going to another room if you're in a conflict with someone else, and then do one of several things to try to get out of your head and connect into your body. And that could be anything from like just feeling texture, like touching some grass or the rug, stretching pretend that you're like sending energy through your through your limbs as you stretch like really making it a conscious thing shifting your breathing pattern recognizing like when we're in a reactive triggered state we're typically breathing as though we're getting chased by some sort of predator you know so we're, we're really up in our chest and it's shallow and fast <sighs> so yeah. take a minute and breathe into your belly and really notice like how you're actually breathing And it typically takes 15 to 20 minutes to process and metabolize the adrenaline that comes up when you're in a reactive state. So it's that's not a a very long time. So if you can dedicate that much time to reconnecting, then you can um, move out of the triggered state and then better process what's going on. That is so powerful. I love that because they're all very practical things that you can do. And I was hearing as you were saying that you have to acknowledge being trig- like you have to acknowledge this is happening that you're feeling mm-hmm. this that you are having this reaction instead of going oh no I'm fine I'm fine because I've done that in the past too. oh same <laughs> F- like, fine is like <laughs> total bullshit as yeah, well yeah that's a fine is the thing we say when we want to numb and disconnect understandably so and like you can do whatever the fuck you want if you're triggered like whatever you need to do fine as long as you're not causing harm to yourself or others like go fucking for it um understanding your triggers doesn't mean that triggers go away and that's the thing understanding your triggers is intellectualizing the feeling part i know right like darn it (laughs) i like to joke that there are two guarantees in life you're gonna fucking die and you're gonna get fucking triggered and whoever you're around they're gonna get triggered and that's just because we are all humans existing in life and there's actually nothing wrong with any of it Mm -hmm. so the thing like move away from trying to fix the triggers because it's not a problem to be fixed They're an emotional reaction that we have ingrained in us. And instead, understand, okay, when I am feeling this, what do I need to get to a place where I feel safe and I can actually handle my surroundings? Mm -mm. That's really, really meaningful. I love that. So that the goal is not to get rid of the triggers and to not shun yourself for the trigger or yeah. but to learn how to navigate. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the other issues that you see come up around emotional intelligence? Because I know you work with a lot of couples, different, lots of different people. Totally. I work with a lot of people who are in recovery for substance use disorder or eating disorders as well, most recently. So there's a lot of trauma there. And and so it's triggers, but also in, intense trauma responses and PTSD. I think the biggest issue is that we feel really shamed by the fact that we're even triggered by something or that we feel like it's because we're broken or it's our fault that something happened to us. 
And so we become really defined by what has happened. And so not only do we end up getting triggered by it, but it actually is sort of like an additional, it's like we're carrying a backpack full of rocks with us everywhere we go. And we are um, choosing when we're trying to keep us ourselves safe and not address that, understandably so, like we're not always in a container where we can really handle our trauma. You have to, you, you require a therapeutic environment to really do that. So until, you know, and for those of us who don't have access to that, we're, we're just going to carry around that bag until we can't carry it any longer and something goes down. Mm. Um, but if we do have access to that kind of support, we start learning that we actually do have a choice whether or not to pick up the backpack every morning and, or how much we want to fill that bag with. Um, and really understanding that when we're in a place where we're so defined by our trauma, if we were to work on our trauma so that we're not carrying it with us, we start realizing who am I without it, which is a whole other conversation to have. So sometimes we actually can't afford to drop the backpack right away because without it, we don't know who we are. And that can be scary. It's, in, it's terrifying. And that, and, all, and that just triggers a whole new fight, flight, freeze reaction response. So, so what do it's, you do it's then? complicated. It's really important to have a support base and to work with trained professionals who understand how to help navigate trauma resolution. And not everyone, you know, just because you got a degree does not mean that you know how to be trauma sensitive. Saying it's really hard, even in a giant city like Los Angeles, to find mental health practitioners who can really help you. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad that you brought up that point because it can be so hard to f- get any help. I mean, oh, yeah. if you are going through insurance, if you're lucky enough to to have access, you still have to go through all these hoops to get one. Yep. And then if you sit down and that person's not a good fit, that's really disheartening. It's just like dating in a lot of weird ways. I mean, not to be flippant or anything, but it's like you got a lot to choose from, but then you have to choose, but you know, who do you have access to? Who can you afford? Who's nearby, et cetera. And then you're like, all right, let's give this person a try. And you have to try to like, Give them the benefit of the doubt, even when some flags come up and you're like, I don't know if I like this person, but I got to try. And then it's like six months later, you've given it a go and you realize, fuck, it's not working. Mm. Now I got to try, you know, go through the whole process again. And it's definitely emotionally draining. What are the things to look for if you are going through a really difficult experience, you're trying to move on from whether it's trauma or a loss and you want to find somebody who obviously the personal fit, you don't know until you sit down. Mm But from an expertise standpoint, because I think some people kind of think, oh, a therapist is a therapist, a coach is a coach, but there are actual specialties. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so traditional talk therapy is tends to be the most accessible and covered by most insurance plans that I'm aware of. I'm no expert about insurance. I get screwed by insurance constantly. So just you know, take that with a grain of salt. Um, talk therapy is, is a very common modality that tends to be the most accepted like socially and culturally. Um, but what's important to keep in mind is it requires that your conscious brain. It's, it it's, um, requires you to talk. It means that you have to... Uh, really be conscious of what is coming up for you, what defense mechanisms might be happening. And for those of us who are not used to talking about anything, talk therapy is a great way to start, but there's only so far you can really go. I find if you have a really active brain, if you intellectualize a lot, talk therapy is only going to really get you some, you know, so far because there's a whole part of your brain you're not paying attention to and that's the subconscious. And that's where your trauma is actually stored. So some of us we don't have a conscious memory of the things that's happened to us because that's what our brain has done to keep us safe and help us survive. So talk therapy isn't going to do anything because you don't even really know what's up. Um, it's a good start, but I would suggest if you really want to work through trauma and triggers, and, and trauma, as we know, does not necessarily mean something 
hugely catastrophic and traditional, something you might see in the movies. Trauma is anything that was really upsetting and left an imprint on you. And there's no hierarchy with trauma. Trauma has the same type of effect in our body, regardless of what it was. Thank you for saying that because I hear so often, oh, but that wasn't that big of a deal. Think about all the bad things that happened to other people. Right. And I'm like, well, that doesn't mean you then don't heal. It's it, That's how we minimize our own trauma. That's how we minimize our own feelings and our own experience. And a lot of us were socialized to do it, to stay small and to um, essentially keep us stuck in these old patterns. Because even though the old patterns suck a whole lot, it's what we know. So we we our brain registers them as safe. Because if we were no longer in those patterns, who knows what life could be like? And that is where all the dangers could be, you know? Yeah. So uh, I would I suggest uh, working with um, therapists who know how to do EMDR. Mm, and The uh, rapid eye. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and I understand that there are some other tools that some EMDR Tapping is also kind yeah, of cool. EFT, EFT. EFT is where you do the tapping to really kind of re-regulate, disrupt whatever jarring sort of energy flow through your your body's meridian. You end up tapping on these special points to kind of like jerk it back into gear and keep it flowing again. Um, EFT is something really great when you're in a trigger response. It's actually to be used when you realize like your body feels like electricity is flowing through it, not in a good way. Um, so there, there are absolute practitioners who, kn- who know how to do EFT. Um, there are uh, TMS therapy, uh, magnetic therapy, something that's a little bit newer. Insurance absolutely does cover that, I found recently. Um, some insurance plans 100%, which is just fucking crazy to me. And I'm, I can't wait to do it, uh, which where it actually goes in to uh, treat depression and certain... I mean, it's, it's new-ish, and so right now some of the success rates that I have read with certain facilities is up to, like, 88% with, like, longevity. You actually do a series of six to eight weeks, something like that, and then you don't have to keep coming back week to week to do it. It actually goes right to the source in your brain, and you don't have to talk about anything. You don't have to try to, like, dig through and, and do all of these other potentially complicated things you're not really familiar with. You really just kind of sit there, and you get attached to these these magnets. It's really fascinating to me. Um, a lot of the treatment centers I work at utilize TMS also with some of the clients. So, um, and those are just a few. It, I also really suggest things like dream work because it literally works in your subconscious and dreams are literally feelings, whether we know that or not, like dreams are our feelings and our dreams are messages our subconscious sends us while we're asleep. When our conscious brain is no longer in charge and drowning it out, the subconscious is like, ah, let's go, let's do it. And, uh, you learn a lot about your emotional state and ha- and parts of yourself that it, you are knowingly or not totally suppressing and undermining. Um, and you can learn a lot about your trauma that way too. So, um, and you can like mix and match and do a whole lot of this stuff if, if you're able to. Um, yeah. It's, and see what works and yeah. what doesn't. And, right. Um, EFT, I actually found when I was in a triggered state and I did a YouTube video and I was completely shocked how helpful it was. Mm. I didn't even understand what it was at, the, at that moment. Mm-hmm. I just had heard of it and I was like, and it was one for war veterans. Oh, interesting. But, and it, the, the woman was talking about, um, the science and the research and stuff and how it had helped this particular population. Mm -hmm. And my situation was completely different. Right. And I thought, well, I'll just try it. I can't tell you how helpful it was. It was so amazing. So it's, it's so neat to just go, even if you aren't really sure, just like try these different things. Totally. The dream stuff sounds really fascinating to me. Is there a difference or could you speak to the differences between what you do with dream therapy versus like dream analysis where someone says well what does a mushroom mean and that kind of thing yeah totally um I the way that I mean there's no one way to do dream work so there are some people who do something called like archetypal dream work there's some I think natural dream work I've heard of 
um, dream interpretation is the kind of stuff we're most used to where, you know, oh, I dreamed about a pink elephant. What does that mean? What does pink mean? What does elephant mean? And so that's like, you know, understanding symbolism and archetypes that come up in your dreams. That absolutely can come into play with the dream work that I do. I am less learned of particular archetypes and symbolism. So I tend to look that up or utilize my mentor to if it seems relevant. But honestly, the, the things... The dream work that I do is focused specifically, it's less on the plot line of the story in your dream and more on what were you feeling when these things happened? What does this person was in your dream? Interesting. Like, what does that person mean to you? Who is that person? How do you feel about that person? Because everything in your dream is a part of you. If an ex shows up in your dream, it's not your ex showing up doing what your ex does. It's your brain's interpretation of what your ex has meant to you and what kind of what elements of your ex you find in yourself or that what elements of your ex that you feel particularly strongly about. Not necessarily negative or positive, just feeling something about. Because if you didn't, your brain wouldn't have used that person as a character in that night's plot line. Yeah, yeah. That makes so much sense. It makes the dreaming process kind of subconscious creativity. It absolutely is. I mean, your subconscious is like, what should we, I mean, I personify all my organs, so it doesn't always work for people, but like your subconscious is just like, so what do we want to tell everyone tonight? You know, like, what should we do? And what do we got available? There's that mailbox that she saw on Thursday. There's that weird dude at the grocery store. There's her parents and her dead grandma. Um, Here are four palm trees we'll just throw in and um, let's do it on in the desert. And just like, I like to think of it, it just sort of, you know, orchestrating some big play that night. And it doesn't have a lot of time to put it all together. So it throws it in and then ultimately has some kind of, you know, message or multiple messages or just like pieces of information that they're trying to throw at you. And um, whether you, you know, receive it and remember it in the morning or not um, is really up to you. Because some people believe that they don't dream at all. And that's actually not true. Everybody absolutely dreams unless they are on some sort of medication to suppress your dreams, which do exist for PTSD survivors um, or for trauma survivors experiencing PTSD, um, specifically for night terrors. But uh, otherwise, you absolutely dream. And if you just you just don't remember them in the morning and it is a muscle, you can actually train yourself to remember them more. Because typically, if you don't remember it, it's because it's because something in your subconscious you doesn't want to mem- remember uh, it. I'd heard that you remember them if you wake up in the middle of it or like if you're in REM sleep, for example. Mm-hmm. Is that true or not? I mean, I think it's really less about what kind of sleep you have and more about what your wake up routine is. Um, if you you tend to if you wake up from a dream, you might not necessarily remember the plot, but you'll feel something in you like you you might feel anxiety. You might feel something sad or you might have felt really happy or good or really turned on or something. And that's typically because you were feeling physically you were having a physical reaction to the feelings you were having in that dream. And so the best way to get that muscle going is just to write down anything you can remember while you were sleeping and just write it down somewhere in your phone in on a notepad and the more you do it the more things will stick around in the morning but if you are the type who wakes up and very quickly checks your phone or looks at your email or thinks about other things that is what your brain's way of disconnecting and detaching from what you were experiencing while you were sleeping and it's sort of it will very quickly it's like letting go of a balloon they go so fast they do and it's like before you know it you know, it's a mile it's up in the sky and gone. Yeah. 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 That's really fascinating. Could you share an example? I know you can't share details about any particular clients or anything, mm-hmm. but just a hypothetical or an experience from your life or friends where there was a dream that was a, you were able to 
use as a therapy tool? Oh, like yeah. what would be a practical? It's really just, I mean, it ha- I do dream work for myself every week and it happens all the time. I mean, there's never a dream that doesn't have something to learn from. Um, and you'll ultimately start noticing like patterns. So if you notice that you have dreams where you're frequently feeling like you're being chased by someone um, and you genuinely are feeling like unsafe, um, the thing that's interesting about dreams is there is no actual like danger in dreams. There's no risk that you might be injured or or die. You're, you're, it's all made up. It's just in your head. And so often, like I've had dreams um, involving men where I either feel afraid of men, like they're either going to attack me or that they're chasing me. And so the thing that you really do is, okay, first things first, how do you know you're being chased? And so you really think about the dream. Well, I saw someone and then I started running and I kept turning back and I, and I think I saw him and I just kept running and I was just really, really scared. It's like, okay, cool. And you start really asking other questions like, how do you know this for sure? How do you know that for sure? And oftentimes, like with with, pers- with dreams that I've had, you know, with clients or even my own involving some sort of, ma- you know, male figure and fear, it's usually a projection. Like the fear itself is absolutely very real. But the person that you're afraid of in the dream is rarely actually chasing you or causing you violence. Um, what it's often ha- what's often happening is that figure is trying to get close to you. That figure is trying to connect with you in some way. Oh. And you are in the dream registering that as a threat. Interesting. Yeah. So once you realize that, then you can deal with situations in your real life where you might feel that way? Yeah. It's, it's you, The main thing with dreams is you think about, okay, so what was I feeling in the dream? And is that similar or familiar to stuff that I feel in my waking life? And then you just start to kind of like map things out with no judgment because there's no fucking point to judge it. Like get over, just get over yourself at that point. Um, easier said than done. But if you notice like, okay, yes, I, this happens in my daily life a lot with my marriage or with my parents. The point is not to then be like, oh, this is another thing that's fucked that I need to fix. It's more like, oh, interesting. This is more information about how I handle intimacy or what I what I might fear from connection. And then you can actually utilize that in other forms of therapy if you want to, because it's just new tools you're learning about yourself. And then you can you can understand, like, for example, if I notice, okay, I do seem to have a fear when men are trying to, to connect with me and I register that as something that's a threat, not necessarily violent, but um, or like an emotional threat. Is that working for me? Do I want that to be in my life anymore? And if I do, if it's good for me now, like I get to choose that ultimately. Or I get to decide, no, I'm really bored. It's exhausting and I feel lonely and I don't want to feel lonely in my marriage. Or I don't want to feel lonely when I'm at a family reunion because this, these are the people that ideally I could feel the most connected to. Um, so now what can I do to try to reconcile this fear of connection. Ah, uh, yeah, the knowledge is really powerful and you're not creating anything, you're discovering. It's absolute discovery. And then it's your choice. I like that too because I think sometimes people think dreams and like they start thinking of hypnosis and things happening to them without a choice where right. it's like you're saying, "No, then you get to go. These are the cards on your table." Yeah. What are you going to do with them? Totally. Yeah. And just with the under- others with the understanding that nothing nothing having to do with feelings is ultimately avoidable. You could press, I use, I use lots of analogies too, like back in the olden days when we played cassette boom boxes and we'd press pause, you can totally pause it, but at some point it's no longer going to pause and it's just going to start playing again at an inopportune time. <laughs> yeah. So if you need to pause it in the moment to be able to deal with the situation, fuck yeah, pause it. But pausing is not stopping and deleting. And so get ready for that to come back again at some point and start playing. And yep, you can press pause again if you want. 
But at some point, that's going to get unsustainable and exhausting to keep pausing and then waiting. When's it going to come back? When's it going to come back? You know? Yeah. It's like the resisting the urge to cry. Absolutely. If it's you just example. let it out, it it's painful sometimes. It can be. But it very quickly helps the emotion. You get through it instead of pausing it and having it build into something. Totally. Oh, my God. I mean, crying is an innate response humans developed, partly because hormones are released in your tears. Like, it's a thing that your body is supposed to do. And I was even talking about this with a client yesterday. Your body is a beautiful machine that's, like, handling its shit constantly, and you're not even having to do anything. It's just doing it. It's really magical. When you start trying to prevent some of those systems from happening, you disrupt the fucking system, and shit gets haywire. And so... You can then get to decide, okay, do I really want to fuck with this so much? Because I think I actually might be causing myself more harm. And do I really want to burst into tears at Trader Joe's every Sunday because I don't actually cry when I'm really sad? Like, that probably will get old, too. So um, you can get to a point where you're like, yep, fuck it. I need to do something different. I need to disrupt this pattern. This is goddamn exhausting. I love it. And I would love to talk about another magical body part. Yes, speaking of magical machines. Yes, and <laughs> and body parts that do so much for us yeah. all on their own. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about vulvas. Mm-hmm. What is one of the biggest myths that you find around vulvas? Oh, God, how do I choose? There are many, huh? Yeah, I guess well, I guess biggest myth is that like vulvas don't exist. It's vagina. Yeah. Um, vagina is the tubular muscle that is the entry or exit depending on your perspective, um, in the vulva itself. It is where tampons go in if <laughs> you menstruate. It is where babies come out if you have a child. Um, sometimes penises or dildos go in there and out of there. Um, but the vulva itself is the entire external anatomy. Um, really common also confusion is that there's like a way for them to look. And um, if yours doesn't look like that, then it's something you need to fix. Uh, or that there are just a variety of mysterious problems that vulvas have that just need to get fixed. And thank God we have so many solutions for them. And don't worry, they're a little expensive, but you'll be fine. Yeah, um, and some are very invasive. Mm-hmm. I I really respect people's choices to do what they want to with their yeah. bodies. But it makes me really sad that there's so much money put into getting people to think that they're any part of their body, but that their genitals are unusual and need. I read a study about very, very young people with vulvas having surgery. Yeah. And that makes me sad. They're still developing Mm -hmm. when I don't know what, you know, it's like, what are we trying to measure up to? Because we're all so different. That's, that's the thing. I mean, the beauty industry and fitness industry wouldn't work if we all didn't feel shame about our bodies. Um, And so, you know, advertising and marketing learned really quickly to hook into insecurity in order to sell shit. And, um, it's a billion dollar industry if you want to total it all up. And specifically with vulva stuff, uh, there's the thing that they're really banking on is that there's this like assumed normal, which never stays the same. The goalpost is constantly moving. And um, it's just, it makes me laugh now because for a long time I was blind to it. How uh, we are all so, we've all just been fooled. And we're con- consistently being fooled by a culture that wants us to continue being afraid of what's down there. Because as soon as we learn, the soon as, as soon as we connect with it, we are, become so fucking powerful. And you can't profit off of that. Yeah. But you can certainly create incredible magic in your life and do wonderful right. things. So you teach a lot of different workshops. Yeah. One that's coming up sounds really awesome. Would you talk about its 
vulva, uh, what is gazing? Yeah, vulva, vulva gazing. gazing. So the workshop itself, it's called The Space Between, and it's September 30th at Women's Space in Culver City. Um, its main intention is to work your way up to, if you'd like to, grab a hand mirror that I will provide and a little privacy shawl and find a little corner of privacy in the room and just take a peek at what's between your legs. Um, it's something that uh, I've been wanting to do for a long time and I kind of was holding back with this sort of assumption or fear that the public would be like, what? What are you? You want me to do what? And I absolutely get that reaction. But it got to a point where it's like, fuck this shit, especially just with how what's going on politically and all of the you know policing of women's bodies and especially women of color, you know, colors bodies like. It's just been happening for centuries at this point, and we are all fucking fed up. And what better time to offer people with vulvas an opportunity to, like, collectively burn it all down, even if it's just a little bit of a small fire in, in a little workshop space in Culver City. Like, incremental change is what really needs to happen. And everything changes when you shine light on something that you've been keeping hidden for a really long time. And I feel you like know? so many people don't realize that they have felt or been hidden or had yeah. shame around it. It's one of those types of shame that I feel like you don't always realize how deep the shame goes until you lift up the veil and go, oh, like, why didn't I look? Totally. This part of my body I've never looked. What would you say to someone who hears that and they're kind of like, Ugh, I'm kind of like really freaked out. I don't want to see what's down there. Yeah. I, I've had conversations with people like that, actually, um, where it's just like, yeah, I don't fucking blame you. You know, this is a part of anatomy that doesn't hang out um, on the outside front of our body. So like we don't we can't step out of the shower and casually look in the mirror and take a peek at what's there. If you really want to see what your vulva looks like, you have to want to. You have to sit down, spread your legs, get a mirror, bend over. Like there's steps there, which means you have to admit to yourself that you want to instead of fooling yourself like I'm just going to take a quick peek while I put lotion on and I'm not really looking, you know. And there's there's shame in that just culturally vulvas have always been shrouded in mystery and it's like the down there and all of these other types of secretive words um to refer to it nobody even still to this day really knows what vulva means and so why wouldn't you be weirded out and kind of even grossed out at the thought of doing the whole spread your legs process to see what's there because it's it's doing it's absolutely rejecting a social norm that we have been um that's been like rooted in us from childhood and that when you undo when you do something against a social norm that's so ingrained in you it can cause physical pain and that intense discomfort is actually the result of something dying in you. So our brain might register that as, uh-oh, this is bad, I'm uncomfortable, let's stop. But actually, uh-oh, this is uncomfortable, let's not stop because it means I am fucking setting fire to the thing that is keeping me uh -huh. in secret and shame. And yeah. I don't want to be there anymore. That gave me chills. That's beautiful. I imagine the transformation once you are able, especially the more afraid you are, mm -hmm. the more powerful it could be, as you Absolutely. said, putting it on fire, just like 
this this thing that has felt so mysterious and uncomfortable for me, getting through that must feel so strengthening. I know that for me, getting angry at societal messaging mm-hmm. helped me heal through so many things yes. and embrace my sexuality. And then realizing like, why hadn't I done this? And then you, yeah. the anger can be powerful. Rage is so powerful. Oh, but I never used to let myself. And I think a lot of people do that. Well, that's a socialization thing. Anger is one of those feelings that either it's the only emotion available to you. And if you're not angry, you're you know feminized in some way. Um, or if you're angry, you are bad, you're violent, and you're dangerous. And so we have a real love-hate binary relationship to it. But anger, like I said earlier, is a combo of fear and sadness. And so it, if you're not really dealing with your anger, you're also not dealing with two very intensely intimate feelings. And when you really get to fucking just rage, you are really releasing, I mean, among other things, you're releasing like endorphins and you're... It's like letting, you know, Pandora out of the box. Um, And as long as it is in a container of, you know, safety with like, you know, pillows to punch or places to scream into, it is absolutely safe to release that because rage is, it gets stored in our bodies and it can absolutely cause us harm. And why, if, if we can do something about it, like we don't deserve to be in that state anymore. Like it's so, it's so awful and fuck it. And we all should be fucking angry. I am angry all the time. And one of the things I'm always dealing with is like this underlying feeling of just like irritated all the time. And that's the result of just years and years of absolute emotional disconnect, things that had never really been dealt with and processed before. So Does, now I, you know, you know, it's never too late. Yeah, it's not. Does all of this work that you've done, it obviously can shed light on more. We see a lot of the problems, right? Like mm-hmm. you're seeing so many of these issues that have gone on way too long and I'm sure you feel people's pain mm-hmm. and that must be a lot to carry. How has it influenced you? Does this show up in in your dreams? Is that mm-hmm. one of the reasons that you prioritize those kinds of self-therapies as well? How do you how do you navigate all the heaviness? Um it's difficult. And and I just also want to be clear like just because I know about this stuff or have done the work does not mean that like I've done it and now I'm good and all handled it's like I'm constantly fucking shit up all the time but like I think that's actually part of the deal and if you're not screwing stuff up and you know mishandling issues in your relationship or not reacting in a healthy way to things on a regular basis it just means that you might not actually be really like in it it's like denial or you're dead (laughs) something (laughs) like that yeah yeah um it is not easy to deal with some of the heaviness especially with some of the group work I do in rehabs um part of it uh you can call it an emotional or an energetic boundary. You really do have to have a little bit of disassociation go- or compartmentalization going on in the moment in order to hold space for whatever's going on while um, having a, a container to stick your own reaction into. And it does not mean that there, I'm consistently doing personal work to release whatever's in that little compartment. It might come out other places. Um, and But really what it, what it ends up doing is just activating my ability to feel and how intensely I end up feeling those things. And um, I have I have developed a little bit of a, a bit of a skill to understand like what's theirs and what's mine, which is absolutely useful and, and takes practice. And so now it's really just um, paying more attention to what's mine and what if it comes up in moments when somebody is having a reaction and what to do if it does. Yeah, yeah. I love that you mentioned that you're continually working these muscles that's just something that constant we all have to do it's so exhausting yeah Yeah. it's it's one of those things where you know i even tell clients like 
after you make a really big life change, like stopping a compulsive behavior or a substance use um, dependency, it's it can be really scary because you start to realize like now I actually have to live life huh. without I have to those feel security. stuff. Yeah, and I, and I really have to deal. <laughs> yeah. And there's and there is such a desire for a binary thinking where it's mm-hmm. like I just need to figure out how and I'll be good. And I'll be happy all the time. Yeah, and some some people run groups that are a little bit stuck in the binary where it's like this is what works and it's like a life vest when you're drowning. Like clients love that and I understand it. But uh, the way that I work with my workshops is really in my group work is just I wish it was that easy and simple. And if it was, I would absolutely be throwing those life vests to you. All I can say is once you choose to start making changes and being more present and connect, it's a lifelong choice. And if you're not ready for it now, no problem. Like you get to choose. But it, if you, that's the only real way to be present and live your life in a way that's going to feel authentic and nourishing and connected. Um, and it is the life that that's what makes life possible without a a dependency on a substance or any type of other behavior. And it doesn't mean that it's a straight line forward. Once you make that choice, it's just sort of like, you know, you really just have to be, it's like surfing. I don't know. You just have to stay on the board and wherever the, the waves throw you, like get tossed around and it's okay if you fall off. Um, otherwise you're trying to like, root yourself and hope the and stay rigid and hope the waves don't knock <laughs> yeah. you like that doesn't work either yeah so you might as well just kind of like accept it and surrender absolutely and the rewards are so magnificent they I feel be, like yeah. sometimes I mean the the hardship is very real but also knowing that that comes with or can yes. open the door to what are some of the biggest rewards and benefits that that you've seen people experience I think the biggest thing is really um learning that they actually have access to what they like to call like good feelings where they can actually, they realize like it has nothing to do with being broken and everything to do with just like finding the switch that has been turned off or like plugging the plug back in. Um, And when they realize I really can feel love towards someone or I really can have a fight with someone that I love, I can love someone and then I can also fight with them and survive that fight without relapse or without all of the stories that were playing in my head beforehand, all of my worst case scenarios, like, wow, none of that actually fucking happened. And realizing how much our, how powerful and wonderful our brains are, like, thank you, brain, for all you, the work you do, but also like, fuck off, brain. Mm-hmm. And I, and I have that, learning that I have that power can be, um, just so eye-opening because it makes I don't know it makes life possible and it can really like when when life feels really hopeless and you're really like what am I doing how do I deal you start learning like it's actually I okay I it's not that it's not that bad I got this I have tools yeah I I can work through this I can and also feeling the bigger feelings more positively like you said the that you can feel love it's not just about letting yourself feel all the hard stuff, which is important too, but all that wonder. And I think also like men embracing the sadness and the pain and seeing the beauty in that or recognizing why that exists um, also is really powerful for people. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly serves a purpose. That is so beautiful. So tell people where they can sign up and learn more about this upcoming workshop and your your work in general. Yeah, sure. Um, Right now, I mean, tickets are on sale at spacebetween.splashthat.com. If you follow me at the Ann Hodder uh, on Instagram um, or Ann Hodder on Facebook, um, I post about it periodically 
and uh, any other workshops that are coming up typically get blasted out on Instagram before anything else. So that's a really good place to start. And one last thought, what's mm-hmm. one of your favorite wonderful facts about the vulva? Mm, I, mm, oh my God. Oh my God. Um, the one that I feel like everyone talks about is that it's a self-cleaning oven and literally is just like its own ecosystem handling its business and like just hands off, please. It's, it's got it. I also love how fucking resilient the vagina itself is and that it can expand I mean on its own it expands 200 times its size when it's aroused so it can accommodate whatever might get stuck in there like it's on its own and if a baby does come out of the vagina like it can expand and spring and then just like spring right back in like you know beautiful spandex biological spandex and (laughs) you don't have to do anything about it it's got it it's so I don't know it's like a beautiful metaphor for femininity and when female empowerment where it's just like get out of its way it's got it fucking handled and it's a lot more powerful than other people think Mm, beautiful thank you so much for being here thanks so much for having me isn't Anne awesome I loved our chat so much and I love you all so much that I cannot be in the studio today but I'm still finishing the episode out I'm sitting in my closet I'm sitting on a pile of shoes surrounded by clothing if you hear a chirp of a bird or some rustling around of a dog that is why but I couldn't finish this episode without bringing you this wonderful listener question from Jesse who wrote this hello I'm 22 and have recently been diagnosed with vulvodynia I'm also a virgin and have never even had a boyfriend I would like to start dating and having sex once I meet the right person but I keep reading things about how awful sex can be with vulvodynia. My pain is getting better, but I'm still worried about this. Do you have any suggestions? Thank you, Jesse. Jesse, thank you for this question. It's such an important one. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of greatlifegreatsex.com had to say. Jesse, thanks so much for this question. And I think it's great that uh, you're ready for dating and absolutely getting a diagnosis of vulvodynia should not put the when you're ready uh, sex on the back burner. Um, first of all, I think it's important to note that uh, you know, for many women, the condition of vulvodynia may only last months. Um, that being said, it's something you want to be on top of and it sounds like you're already getting medical care that it's already, um, you're feeling less pain and discomfort. Uh, because it is true that for some women, it can last for years. So um, I think not everyone out there necessarily knows what vulvodynia is. So I'm going to give a quick definition. Um, because simply put, it's basically chronic vulvar uh, pain, typically at the vestibule, the opening of the vagina, without an identifiable cause. And the location, constancy, and even severity of the pain very much differs between and amongst women. Um, some experience pain in just one area of the vulvar vestibule, others in multiple areas. Um, the most common sensation is burning. Um, and that's why it's often uh, sort of treated along the lines of like a neuropathic pain, um, because nerves can be indicated um, or involved. And it's important to recognize that um, there are many treatments available. So I'm not sure which ones you've, you know, if you just saw your general internist, whether you've been to a specialist, because they even have pelvic pain specialists, um, in addition to, uh, like vulval vaginal specialists. So, uh, definitely want to make sure that you're in the right hands. Um, what's interesting is that even though we don't understand the 
you know, the why, the identical cause of vulvodynia, there are um, potential contributing causes or factors um, that are generally generally part of the assessment. Because again, it might be related to injury or irritation to the nerves. Uh, again, really common can be past uh, vaginal infections, allergies, sensitive skin, hormonal changes, and even muscle spasm or weakness of the pelvic floor. Um, and I think importantly, when, if there's any pelvic floor that's involved, an amazing resource for that is Healing Pelvic Pain. It's a book by Amy Stein. Um, and it's, the subtitle is The Proven Stretching, Strengthening, and Nutrition Program for Relieving Pain, Incontinence, IBS, and Other Symptoms Without Surgery. Um, so let's go back to you. I think between now and then, there's a lot of those self-help tips that if you're not already aware, um, just want to bring to your attention. Because again, knowing that you haven't had uh, penetration or sex yet, I'm not sure if even just like wearing tight jeans, you know, what's sort of provoking uh, and how you're experiencing the pain. So on the self-help side, it's certainly to be wearing uh, cotton underwear, not wearing anything tight like pantyhose or tight uh, pants or or um, jeans, definitely removing wet bathing suits or when you exercise, any wet clothing promptly. And for, again, because many um, have allergies or skin sensitivities, using a dermatologically approved detergent such as Purex, Purex or Clear. Um, and then definitely staying away from like fabric softeners. Um, and then in terms of your own showering, you know, the sense of Avoid getting shampoo directly on your vulvar area, not using bubble bath or any feminine hygiene products, uh, typically washing, you know, with cold or lukewarm water only. Again, no products because again, the vagina is a sort of self-cleaning machine in a sense. Um, and always, you know, urinate before your bladder is full. Um, I think that these are important self-help tips just to make you more comfortable. Um, and I think the other important piece is because I work a lot with vulvar pain um, when, when women are actually having sex. Um, and so often it's the anticipation of. And so in the first part of your question, you know, you say, I'm worried. I'm like, every time I hear that word, I'm like, okay, the thing about worry or fear is it's about things that haven't yet happened, right? They're in the future. And the reality is I don't know and you don't know until you get there. Um, but what we know is when we're worried or we're anxious, often that's constricted energy. And that can actually lead to, you know, part of the anticipatory anxiety is tensing up muscles, and again, the foundation of arousal is relaxation. So you want to think about it that, you know, it's interesting. My daughter's getting over a needle phobia. And what I learned from our last visit is like when she's typically expecting, she's tightening her, her arm. And the, in doing so, the doctor said it's like injecting the needle is that much harder because it's going against a hard, um, surface, right? But that when she was relaxed and she wasn't this last time, it was just like the injection went right in, sort of like, you know, butter through a warm knife. And so, listen, I know I'm not equating, um, you know, needle penetration to vaginal penetration, but that concept of when you wear your tight and holding tension, again, it could be in your thighs, it could be in your pelvic floor, that in and of itself would make the penetration more uncomfortable or painful. So absolutely, when the time is right, focusing on 
again, knowing it's the right person and the relaxation. And then also, again, coming back to when, if worst case scenario, um, you're still experiencing pain from the vulvodynia, that you have seen a specialist because there really are so many um, options, including topical um, analgesics like lidocaine, but there are also medications like often the tricyclic antidepressants um, have analgesic properties. Um, and then, of course, it could be the pelvic floor therapy, but they also can do nerve blocks um, and even, you know, acupuncture. There's so many different options. So I just want you to know that vulvodynia isn't going to hold you back from finding that right relationship. But as always, would love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I love what she had to say about relaxation being the foundation of arousal and that when we can get to that place and really be present in the sensations of our body and and trust our bodies and trust that your body is designed for pleasure, that you're going to invite so much wonder. And as she said, Valvadinia doesn't have to keep going necessarily. Sometimes it's flare up. Sometimes it improves over time and, and people no longer struggle with it at all. But it's so interesting when we Google things, right? It can feel really scary when you see headlines or kind of more the horror stories. But you know what, Jesse, you are doing such wonderful things by getting the care that you need. You're already improving and you're in this really exciting time of your life as well, where you're working through challenges and also thinking about romance and potentially having some sexy play and fun once you meet someone you have that strong connection with. So I'm really excited for you and, and hopeful and optimistic. You know, our sex lives aren't supposed to be easy breezy either. So for anybody out there, if you have any challenges, that's all part of the deal, right? And, and when we do meet that right person or we decide to have sex with a person, we are making ourselves vulnerable in, in many ways. And that's a beautiful thing too. You know, and we, we take care of ourselves and, and we go about things safely and, and respecting everybody. It's, it's a really powerful, wonderful thing. And I have a feeling, Jesse, that there's a lot of pleasure in your future. So if you have any more questions, if any of you have questions out there, please drop me a note. You can contact me at augustmclaughlin.com or find me on social media. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe on iTunes if you haven't and leave us a simple review. It takes about two seconds to leave a rating. You can also follow along on iHeartRadio and Spotify. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.